Good morning. My name's Chuck Labati. Today's scripture reading is Esther chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 18, which can be found on page 410 in the Black Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible of your own or know someone who needs one, please feel free to take one of the Pew Bibles as our gift to you. Again, that's Esther chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 18. Please stand as you are able for the reading of God's word. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict, there is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women of the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abitha, Zethar, and Carcas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come to the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of this queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king... Let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all this kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. 
This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashdai. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. <clears throat> he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther Wilson was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, <clears throat> six months with oil and myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgah, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet, in this seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashdai. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. The word of the Lord. So we're beginning a new series of sermons from the book of Esther. Uh, the, the events in this book take place about a hundred years ago or so after the exile. So the Jews were taken out of Jerusalem and Judea. The city is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. They're taken to Babylon. 
Now fast forward a little bit, a new empire is on the scene, the Persians take over, and so now they're the new superpower, they actually let the Jews go home. Whoever wanted to go back to Jerusalem, they could go. Many went, and they rebuild the temple, rebuild the city. You can read about that in Ezra and Nehemiah in the Bible. So Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of books that really belong together. Esther is about the Jews who remained in the Persian Empire, they didn't go back. And then uh, Ezra and Nehemiah are about the Jews who went back to rebuild. And so we're looking at, at this book uh, that is really unique in the Bible. Here's one way in which it's unique. There's no mention of God in the whole book. Now, this is, this is in the Bible, right? A, the book about God, and, and you have this book that mentioned, doesn't even mention God's name. There's no clear reference. There's some, some veiled references to God, but there's no, there's no name of God in the book of Esther. That's very, very unusual. I mean, it's, it's really, really strange. The question is why? Uh, and I think the reason is, is because the book is about the people of God living in a conspicuously non-religious society. That's one of the commentators says it's conspicuously non-religious. It's, it's, a, it's a book about people of God who live in a culture that doesn't talk about God, that doesn't affirm God, that doesn't bring God into their lives. That sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? This is a book for our times. We need to figure out how we as Christians can live in a culture that is increasingly more and more indifferent to the gospel and even hostile to the gospel, in a culture where God is marginalized. That's not unusual in most of the world for Christians to live in a culture like this. And so when we read Esther, that's really in many ways our story today. How do we live in a secular culture? How do we live in a pluralistic culture that doesn't affirm our faith? What do we do with that? And so the point of Esther is that God remains very active even when he seems absent. So when you read the book, no mention of God. And yet, when you read the book, you realize God is very much involved in what's happening here. It's a book about providence. It's a book about the invisible hand of God that still cares for his people and still works behind the scenes. So I think it's deliberately silent on God to show us that God is still working in the midst of his seeming absence. I think it's going to be very encouraging for us to hear. The book recounts the time when God's people are threatened with destruction, and we'll read that later in the book, and they are miraculously delivered by God through a series of seemingly unrelated random events that kind of all come together and also through a series of courageous and unusual choices that Esther and Mordecai make. So, to explain the title of the sermon, this is a bit like watching a game of chess. This is a bit like looking at two players and saying, clearly, this player is winning. This game is all but lost. This person has so much advantage. And yet, at the last minute, realizing that all of that was not true. And that, in fact, the person who seemed to be losing is winning. This is the book. The book of Esther is, is based and it hinges on these reversals of fortunes. Somebody who seems powerful loses all his power. Somebody who seems wealthy loses all his wealth. Somebody who sees poor gets wealthy. I mean, the whole book is about these reversals. And so we're going to see how God works through these kinds of almost chess-like strategies. There's sacrifice involved, but often in chess, the sacrifice is made for a greater positional advantage. Okay, so let's look at the beginning of the book. Chuck, thank you for reading it for us. We took a larger portion because it really sets up the whole story. It's almost, this is, this is the opening. You know, you got the pieces are set, and the, the opening strategy is now now defined, we know what the game is going to be like, and so we needed to read that long passage to understand what's happening. My outline is very simple this morning. It only has two points, which as you know by now has no reflection on the length of the sermon, but <laughs> only two points. I'd like to contrast the way of the world and the way of the Lord. 
the way of the world and the way of the Lord. And this is where we live as Christians in a secular culture. How do we pursue the way of the Lord in the culture that affirms the way of the world? So I'm going to try to contrast those two. So let's look at the way of the world. Now, as you were paying attention, and if you read the book of Esther beforehand, you know, and uh, it's very clear that the first two chapters are very visual. They're very visual. King Ahasuerus gives this incredible, lavish feast. It says that for six months, he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. He's showing that. They can see it. You know, this great detail is taken to describe the, the curtains and the couches, right, and the, the marble columns. Like, why? Because this is kind of his thing. He's showing off his glory. He's saying, look how wealthy I am. Look how powerful I am. For six months, he's feasting with his nobles and governors and generals. And then he calls for Vashti, the queen, the beautiful queen. Why is he calling for her? To show her off. He wants his generals to see how beautiful his queen is. And then when we get to Esther, the same emphasis on visual beauty is maintained. Esther was lovely to look at. She looked good. She looked lovely. She was winning favor with, with anybody who saw her in the eyes of all who saw her. You see, this, this whole portion, these two chapters are about appearances. It's about what you see. It's about impressing people with your appearances. When we talk about the world, and this is the way of the world to impress others with appearances, when we talk about the world, what I mean is this biblical idea, this concept that there's a set of values out there, there's a certain way of life out there that is opposite to God's way of life. When we say the world in the church and when you read Scripture, we mean this, this set of values, this culture, this society, this, this way of life organized around these principles. 1 John 2 verse 16 defines it this way, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So John says, this is what the world is. It's the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life or pride of possessions. This is what we see illustrated in our first chapter of Esther. Let me distill it to a principle, okay? And then we'll, we'll work it out and see how it plays out in life. The principle is this. This is the world's principle. The world says, impress others with what you have to get what you want. Impress others with what you have to get what you want. The king, for example. He's impressing others with what he has, his wealth, his power, his glory, his splendor. That's what he has. He's using that to impress others. Why? Well, we know from history that this great long banquet is actually a great war council. The king is ready to go to war. And he's showing off his glory, he's showing off his wealth, he's showing off his power to get all his generals and all his governors and all his nobles on board with this new military campaign. He's using what he has, his wealth, his power, his glory, to get what he wants, loyalty, acceptance, following, obedience of all these people. He's doing that because he wants to go to war with Greece. Now, we know this is very clear in history when... Ahasuerus, also known by his Greek name Xerxes, so if you studied history, you may know him as, as Xerxes. It's too many X's in one name, in my opinion, but he is Persian, so it makes sense. He ascended to the throne. This is his third year of rule, right? So he's been ruling for three years. That's about how long it takes to consolidate power to make sure you don't have any rivals. Now, his father, Darius, Darius was a great conqueror but he could not conquer Greece. He's defeated by the Greeks. And so Ahasuerus, the good son that he is, he's saying, I will do what my father failed to do. I will conquer Greece. For that, he needs everybody in the empire. And this is a vast empire. So he calls everybody to his capital. They have this great feast, and they're discussing all the military strategies. They're planning. They're making sure everybody's loyal. They're making sure everybody's on board. And so he takes what he has his wealth, his power, his glory, 
to impress others so they would follow him into war. And by the way, Ahasuerus was very, very impressive. He's in his mid-30s, in full control of this vast empire from India to Ethiopia, largest empire of its time. The Greek historian Herodotus describes him as a tall and handsome man, an ambitious and ruthless ruler, brilliant warrior and a jealous lover. How would you like to be described like that? Herodotus also said that he had moves like Jagger. I don't know how, it, <laughs> how he knew that, how he could make that reference, but that's the kind of person Xerxes was. He's incredibly wealthy. I mean, the Greeks marveled at the wealth of Persia. He's incredibly powerful, and, and he takes all of that, right, all that he has, and he said, I'm going to impress all my generals, and we're going to go to war, and we're going to conquer Greece. Now, the same thing is happening with Esther. Esther is doing exactly the same thing with what she has, impressing others to get what she wants. She wants to impress the king with her beauty to get what she wants, which is security and influence. Now, this is how the world works in all cultures, all eras in history. We use what we have to get what we want. Now, some modern readers, of course, read this account of gathering young virgins, right, putting them in the harem, and then one by one they go to please the king, and then he picks the one he wants to be his queen, and we are appalled by that. And rightly so, absolutely. This is despicable. I mean, you have to say, this is, this is bad, this is evil, to use people like that. Of course, in our enlightened and, and, and advanced culture, we don't do that, right? We don't do that. We don't trade beauty for power, do we? We don't trade power for sexual pleasure. We don't do that. You see, the world works in the same way in any culture. It, just, it, just, it works itself differently, and we have maybe different ideas, but it's the same mechanism. We take what we have, and then we use it to get what we want. Cue in The Bachelor. <laughs> have you seen The Bachelor? I'm assuming at least some of us have, have seen the show. I mean, how is that different from Esther? How is it different? You gather beautiful women who are all trying to impress this one man who is a successful, powerful, good-looking, Xerxes-like man, and they're all trying to impress him, and he's going to pick one. Except there's no crown, there's a rose. That is the same thing, isn't it? And so before we complain about ancient Persia and say, those heathens, they, what did they know? this ancient society, this archaic code of ethics, this patriarchy. Let's look at our culture and say, how is that different? I mean, we're, all, we're all trading what we have for what we want. We're all trying to impress each other. Not all of us have beauty, not all of us have power, not all of us have wealth. But those of us that do, we use that to impress others so we can get something else. One of the biggest industries in our culture is pornography. It's amazing how much money is made. And I will add how much oppression and exploitation happens in that industry. Are we better off than ancient, ancient Persia? I don't really think so. Because the world, with its principle, works out in any culture and at any time, and it brings the same results. This is how the world works. We must be impressive to be liked. We must be impressive to be accepted. We must be impressive to be validated by other people. Beauty, power, and wealth are just as important today as they have been throughout history. We gain acceptance and validation in whatever arena you want to place it in, but we gain the things we want, the things we need, based on appearances. I'm going to impress you with what I know with how I look, with what I have, and you in turn will give me what I want, whatever I think it is that I want. Now, the tragedy of the world's approach in whatever culture, at whatever time, is that it is doomed to fail. And we're seeing in our, this, this short snippet, right, this, this episode in Xerxes' life, 
We already seen how this approach falls apart. For example, remember this powerful man, this tall, handsome warrior, brilliant general, ambitious and ruthless ruler. He's recruiting these very powerful men in his empire to go to war with him. And then he says, you guys want to see my wife? Hey, call Vashti. And Vashti says, no. I mean, imagine, imagine just what's happening in the court. This man with absolute power is defied by his wife. What's he gonna, what can he do? How much power does he really have? All his wealth, all his glory seem very insignificant to Vashti. I like Vashti. I think Vashti is a very positive character in the story. Because what, he's say, what, what she is saying, and I think what the author is communicating through the book, she's saying, I, I'm not going to play the game anymore. I'm not going to do it. I have traded my beauty for power. I have traded my beauty for security and for status. And you know what? It doesn't, it doesn't fulfill me. And I'm, I'm not going to persist in doing that. I'm going to keep a little bit of my dignity. And she just simply says, no. It's amazing. Defying the king. It, and it, it's so simple. One person just says no to this powerful king. And he says, what are we going to do? <laughs> he doesn't know what to do with this. And so he gathers his advisors. And this is probably one of the more humorous scenes, I think, in the book to me. None of them know what to do, and they are tremendously scared. Do you know what they're afraid of? Other women are going to start saying no. Now, these are, these are incredibly powerful and wealthy men, and they are tremendously insecure. You know what that tells me? The world's way doesn't quite work the way we think it's going to work. Because they thought we're going to use our power and our wealth to get these women that will submit to us. And now Vashti comes, and they're saying, uh-oh, if, if my wife hears about this, what's going to happen to me for all my wealth and power and, and glory? And there's a moment where they're, they're kind of scared. And they do a completely opposite thing from what they should have done, you know. Because they're concerned everybody's going to hear about Vashti. And what did they do? Let's send out a royal edict telling everybody in their own language what Vashti has done. Now Everybody's going to know now. And we're going to use our power to try to, to, try to put down this, this rebellion. They act out of tremendous insecurity and brokenness. These are the people with power that want to impress others, and yet they come out pretty unimpressive. Now the king himself would learn pretty soon how false the world's promise is. Now, he did, historically, he did impress his nobles into following him in his war against Greece, but he experienced a humiliating defeat. Persia lost that war, and he came back with his treasury depleted, with the trust of his general lost, no longer considered a brilliant warrior, no longer trusted and adored by, by his followers. He comes back and actually commits himself to a life of sensual pleasure, gives up on the military glory. And eventually, because nobody trusts him anymore, nobody respects him anymore, his bodyguard assassinates him in his own bedroom. That's the end of Xerxes. His reign ends by a trusted person in his inner circle murdering him on behalf of other politicians in the court. In the court. The world says, impress others with what you have to get what you want. But what if you have is not very impressive? Or what if, like, like Xerxes, you can't get what you really want with what you have? What if, like Vashti, you got what you wanted, but it doesn't seem worth what you gave up for it? What if you have nothing else to give? What then? Have you already discovered that the world cannot deliver on its promise? The world is very good at making promises. In our culture, and, you're gonna, and if you pay attention, you hear these promises from everywhere in your life. 
Impress others and you will have what you want. Pretend to be this way and you will get what you really are after. And yet, by the way, marriages that began on, on the set of The Bachelor, surprisingly, don't seem to last. I wonder why that is. Maybe it's because the whole foundation of that relationship is flawed. Maybe it's because it is about appearances, and appearances don't quite last as long as we think they would. The most beautiful supermodels are notoriously insecure about their beauty. How can that be? How can it be when the world says, impress others with how you look, and a person commits their life to do that, only to realize that they don't believe themselves to be beautiful at all? Wealthy people are not happier than people who don't have as much money. Now, if you don't have any money and you get a little bit of money, that does seem to make you happy. But if you have a lot of money, that doesn't make you happier than you were before. There are so many stories of people being completely disillusioned once they get what they want, having traded what they had. Most politicians who have sacrificed in pursuit of power end up disgraced. I mean, we can see experientially that the world's way doesn't work. Now, before I move on to my second point and wrap this up, I need to apply this to the church. Because as you've listened to me, maybe it's easy to say, well, that's the world. You know, that's our culture, the evil culture we live in. And they do all these things, and they watch The Bachelor, and and they trade their money for pleasure. They do all this, but we, of course, in the church, we don't do that. But isn't Esther an example of many Christians who do what the world tells them to do? I am not looking at Esther in this chapter as a positive character. I think she is playing the game that Vashti refused to play. Now, I don't know if Esther had any choice when she was first identified as one of the young virgins. I don't know if they just came and took her or if she could go and and suggest or Mordecai suggested. I don't know what happened exactly. But once she's in the pipeline, she is using the system for her advantage. There's no question about that. She's manipulating everybody she comes in contact with. She she talks to the eunuch, and she says, "You, you tell me what I need to be doing. You tell me what beautification processes I have to go through. And then when she goes into the king, and she can bring anything she wants, she goes to the eunuch and says, what should I do? Because the eunuch knows the king. He knows the king's sexual preferences. And so Esther simply follows the system. And she uses her beauty to her advantage, to get influence, to get status, to get security. She's doing exactly what many Christians do in the world. You follow the world's principle. I'm going to use what I have to get what I want. Isn't that unusual for us to see Christians hide their faith, their identity as a Christian in the workplace or in in, in school? That's not that unusual. There are people here that your coworkers don't know you're a Christian. You haven't really publicized it because it's kind of bad for business. There are people in your schools that don't know you're a believer because it's embarrassing because you can get ostracized. I mean, those are real issues. And like Esther, and by the way, Mordecai is complicit here, right? He is saying, Esther, don't tell them you're a Jew. Don't tell them, because that might affect your chances at being a queen. Then you're just going to be stuck at the harem for the rest of your life. He's saying, don't tell them. Pretend that you're just like everybody else. You don't have any obligations to God. You don't have to follow the law. It's not a problem for you to sleep with an uncircumcised Gentile. That's not a problem. And so she plays the game. I just want to be very straightforward, and hopefully this is, this is helpful to us, okay? Maybe some of us are in the same process of beautification for the world. Are you following those steps? Six months of myrrh, six months of oils, to present yourself in an impressive way to your boss, to your peers, to your culture, to your neighbors, whatever that is. And you're saying, I will be beautiful because I will do what the world tells me to do to make myself beautiful. And I will use that to get what I want. So many Christians are right where in the position that I'm describing. They're Christians. 
but they're living according to the principle of the world. Now, of course, there's another way in which the church takes this principle and uses it, and it's even more twisted than the first one I've described when a Christian just follows the world. This is when we take a good goal, but we try to get to that goal in a worldly way. So, for example, I just, and I'm not going to mention the organization because I really believe in what they're doing, and I want to be supportive of them. But I just got a, in the mail, I just got an invite to a fundraiser. And I cannot tell you how worldly it looks. And by worldly, I don't mean colorful, right? I don't mean they're using reds and greens. What I mean is that the whole appeal to invite me to that fundraiser is to impress me. They're impressing me with what they have to get what they want, which is money. But the way they're impressing me is saying... You can be a VIP at our event. And there's an after party with this famous person. Did you know you can hang out with them? If you come to our event? And by the way, our dinner is going to be off the chain. That's not what they said, but I think that's what they meant. What are they doing? Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, and pride of life. I think their goal is wonderful, and I want to give money to that organization. But the way they go about it is exactly how any other secular organization would go about raising money. That is not Christian. Now, it's very subtle. The differences are deep. It's, it's nuanced. But it is not Christian. Because what they're doing is they're doing what Esther is doing. They're doing what Xerxes is doing. They're saying, we're going to impress you with what we have. Let us make it very attractive to you, very appealing to you. We're going to show you our beauty so you can give us your wealth. There's a story told of Thomas Aquinas, a medieval theologian. You may have heard the story before. So he once walked into the office of the Pope, of the current Pope, that, during his time. And the Pope was looking at this large sum of money laid out on his desk. And the Pope said, You see, the church is no longer in that age in which we can say silver and gold have we none. Aquinas replied, neither can we say to the lame, rise up and walk. Because the church has co-opted the world's principle. And they're saying, now we can be impressive because we have money. Now we don't need the power of God because we have our own power. And I'm afraid that many of our churches are exactly in the same category where we have said that we are kind of impressive. And so we're going to impress people into the kingdom. When they come and see us, they're going to be so impressed with our skill, with our beauty, with our visuals, with our organization, with our buildings, with our programs. They're going to be so impressed that they will believe in Jesus. And that is not how it works. And the whole book of Esther is about that. They're saying it is not about keeping up appearances. It is not about pretending that somehow those things become attractive to people and bring them to Jesus. So what is the alternative? How can we live in the world and not give in to the world's strategies? How can we break free from the world's obsession with appearances? How can we quench this need to impress everyone, which all of us have, We need to look to another king. When Jesus came into this world, please listen carefully, he was intentionally unimpressive. Intentionally unimpressive. Jesus could have done anything he wanted to do. He he could have come into this world in any way he, he wanted to. And yet he chooses to come in in the most unimpressive way. Isaiah 53 describes Jesus in this way. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. Esther was lovely to look at. Ahasuerus was a tall and handsome man in his 30s, a brilliant warrior. But Jesus comes and he has no form or majesty that we should look at him. That means there was nothing attractive about him that would attract our attention to him physically. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He was not a beautiful person externally. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. 
And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Isn't it interesting that the Lord of all creation, with absolute power, absolute wealth, absolute beauty, this is God, deliberately gives all of that up to come into this world as somebody that, he would, that would be despised and rejected and would have nothing to attract our gaze to him. Remember when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by the devil? This, it's, a, it's a great story because it reveals the world to us. The devil comes and he says, Jesus, you're hungry? Look at this bread. You know, you can just command these rocks to become bread and eat. You have that kind of power. So use your power. Impress me. Respond to your appetite. The desires of the flesh, respond to them. And Jesus says, no. And then the devil says, well, I'm going to take you to the roof of the temple. And by the way, you know that God loves you so much that if you jump, the angels would come and lift you up. Jesus, impress me. Do this miracle for me. Show me how cool you really are. Show me how great you are, how secure you are in your relationship with God, that even that, God would save you. Jesus says no. And then the devil says, look at all the riches of the world. He takes them up high and he shows them everything. And he says, you can have all of that, pride of life, you can have all of that if you would just worship me. And Jesus says no. Jesus refuses to impress the devil. And he refuses to be impressed by him. Jesus doesn't accept the world's obsession with appearances. Now in Philippians 2, Paul talks about Jesus deliberately emptying himself of beauty and power. Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He didn't come full he didn't come in splendor and in glory. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Ahasuerus says, look at my servants. Even this beautiful woman serves me. Of course, she proved him wrong. And Jesus comes as a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is how Jesus the king comes into the world. This king is very different from King Xerxes. This king is not parading his wealth, but he hides it. This king does not show off his glory, but conceals it. No one follows this king to war. This king fights alone and dies abandoned. His throne is the cross, the shameful place. Jesus refuses to gain followers through appearances. Do you remember how many times people would come because they wanted to see a miracle? And Jesus would say, you know what you guys need to do to follow me? You eat my flesh and you drink my blood. And they say, we don't want this kind of king. He didn't want people following him because of the miracles. He didn't want people to be impressed with him. Jesus' approach to life is thoroughly unimpressive in the eyes of the world. The way Jesus lived was an, as an ordinary life. Yes, we read about the three years of his ministry, right? But there's 30 years of working a job, being poor, just living life. That's, that's, that's our king. And so when the world says, take what you have and impress others to get what you want, Jesus comes and gives up what he has, not to impress anybody. And because he does that, because he gives up his beauty, I mean, you read, we read the call to worship account of, of him being, being marred and him being, being hurt. There was blood, there were scrapes, right? He was physically mangled. Why, why would God do that? That's Jesus giving up his beauty. Gave up his power, put on the cross, fixed to the cross, unable to move, given up all of his power. That's God doing that for us. He was a poor person. He had no money. Son of man had no place to lay his head. That's God giving up his wealth. And this kind of God comes, this kind of king comes, and he says there's another way. It's not only the way of the world where you impress others into liking you and giving you what you want. 
There's another way, and this other way comes through me. Because he gave up his wealth, he gave up his power, he gave up his glory, he gave up his beauty, but he did that all for us. You see, he gave it away so he can have us. I mean, this is a very different kind of king. On the cross of Jesus, the world is crucified, and a new way of life is proclaimed. In Jesus, we are we're fully accepted by God. When God looks at us, he sees Jesus, the beautiful, perfect, rich, powerful Jesus who gave up everything for us. And God is so impressed with Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf, for us, that he fully accepts us. Not because we have impressed him, but because he is so impressed with the sacrifice of Jesus. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day, Christ on the road to Calvary, tried by sinful men, torn and beaten, then nailed to a cross of wood. Oh, to see the pain written on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin, every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning your blood-stained brow. On the cross, God says, I refuse to deal with you based on your appearances. This is what's happening. He says, you cannot impress me with your beauty. You cannot impress me with your wealth. You cannot impress me with your power. You cannot impress me with your religious accomplishments. God says, I will deal with you based on my son's sacrifice for you. He is the king worth following. His approach to life is worth embracing. This is the message to King Ahasuerus. This is the message to Vashti. This is the message to Esther. This is the message to us this morning. Stop trying to impress others to get what you want. Be so impressed with Jesus so that you can become who you are supposed to be. This is the gospel. Accept that God loves the unimpressive people because his son gave up his beauty and power and glory for us. The world says, be beautiful, be successful, be powerful, be rich, and then you will be loved and accepted. But the gospel says, Jesus loves you, and his love makes you beautiful. It makes you powerful. It makes you wealthy. Do you believe in this gospel? Or do you follow the way of the world, as in Esther 1 and 2? Have you accepted the way of the Lord? Do you stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love us, a sinner condemned unclean? When and to what degree we are impressed with the unimpressiveness of Jesus, our lives can be transformed. This is the solution for Esther. This is, and Esther will discover that, by the way, later. This is the solution for the disillusioned Vashti. This is the solution for Ahasuerus, who's just drunk in his own power. This is the solution for our community. This is the solution for us. To be so impressed with the unimpressive King Jesus so that our lives could be totally transformed. We can break free from keeping up appearances. We can gain courage to make difficult, unpopular decisions at work or at school. We can align ourselves with people who are considered ugly and weak and poor in the world. We can find security that is not dependent on looks or money or success. I'm talking about an incredible life that Jesus offers to us from the cross. This is no joke. The world makes these promises, and it can't, it can't keep them. But then Jesus comes as the new kind of king, and he says, I give up beauty and power and wealth for you, so you can be who you're supposed to be, so you can be fully accepted with God. If God loves me fully, there's no conditions, right? There's no margins to his love. He loves me fully. Why would I be worried about impressing anybody else? Do you see how that just frees you from relationships that are defined by codependency and, 
and pleasing people and manipulating people and abusing people. The gospel frees you from that. To the degree that you understand and have appropriated the gospel by faith, it frees you from that. It gives you real freedom. It gives you freedom from keeping up appearances and saying, well, I must impress people so that they would love me. Because Jesus says that's not who you are, and he knows the real you and still loves you. The world will fail, but the Lord will keep his promise in the gospel. And as Christians who have been fundamentally affected by this message, by this work of our King, we can live in utter ordinary life, in unimpressive lives, and be completely happy. And there's an implication for our lives, for sure, right? Because it's in, in our plainness, we see his beauty. It's in our, in our poverty, we see his treasure. And in our weakness, we see his power. That's, that's personal. But there's also an implication for the church. We better not keep trying to impress people. We better not rely on the world's power. True conversions happen and true spiritual growth happens when we see another person and what attracts me to them is not that they're charismatic, is not that they're powerful, is not that they're wealthy, it's not that they're beautiful. What attracts me to them is that I see Christ in them. And in their, in their poverty, I see the treasure of Christ. In their weakness, I see the power of Christ. In their plainness, I see God's beauty in them. I mean, that's the power, friends. That's, that's how churches change. That's how communities change. That's how lives are changed. By being impressed with the unimpressive king who came to give up his beauty and power so he could love us, so we would be accepted with God forever. I need to wrap this up, even though I want to be talking about this more. <laughs> Because I think this is so important. This is so relevant to us right now. But we're going to come to the feast. You know, the book of Esther is organized around all these feasts. They're always feasting. Every Sunday we come here to participate in the feast of Christ. But look at it. How impressive are these crackers to you? How impressive is this juice? It's not even wine. How, is, how impressive is this juice to you? It should not be impressive. This shouldn't feel glorious to you. This shouldn't feel beautiful and powerful because the power is hidden. The beauty is hidden. And when we come to this feast, we focus on what Jesus has done for us. And so in the crackers, we see the body that was broken for us, the beauty that was erased for us so we would be made beautiful. We see in the plainness of the bread and drink He's given up his riches to be poor for us so we could be rich. In this simpleness, we see what Jesus gave up for us so that his power can go into our lives, so that his treasure could be ours. And that's why we do this, to feast with him, the unimpressive, ordinary king who gave up everything for us so we would be the beautiful, powerful, treasured people in his kingdom.